Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our scripture this morning is from the third chapter of Ephesians, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I fall on my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth receives its true name. I ask God from the wealth of his glory to give you power through his Holy Spirit to be strong in your inner selves. And I pray that Christ will make his home in your hearts through faith. I pray that you may have your roots and foundation in love so that you together with God's people may have the power to understand how broad and long, how high and deep, deep is Christ's love. Yes, may you come to know his love and so be completely filled with the very nature of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Before we get into our text for this morning, would you pray with me? Oh God, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than purest honey. As we turn to your scripture, send your Holy Spirit to infuse these words spoken today with truth and with grace so that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes so that we cannot help but respond with wonder faith, and with trust. Amen. Well, friends, in our text for today that B.B. just read for us so beautifully, um, we find Paul kneeling before the Father deep in passionate intercession for his readers. And you can feel the emotion behind his words. This is no polite, customary prayer holding hands sitting around the dinner table. This is the raw unfiltered longing of one who deeply desires others to know what he has come to know in Jesus. And remember, this is the second prayer that we find in this letter, the first one Chad preached on several weeks ago. It comes at the end of the first chapter, where Paul gives thanks for the faith and love that his readers have, and he asks that the Father would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, that their hearts would be enlightened to know the hope of their calling and the wealth of their inheritance, and that they would know the immeasurable power of God. This power that God doesn't just use for his own purposes in the world, but is actually toward us who believe. It's at work in our lives, in the church, on July 4th, right here in this group of people. The first prayer, um, it emphasizes the reader's need for knowledge of God, and especially of God's power. 
In the second prayer, the one we're focusing on today, Paul repeats his request for knowledge, but this time the knowledge has a focus. Paul specifically asks that they would know the love of Christ. The second prayer can be thought of as a continuation of the first one, but in its focus on love and in the extravagant nature of the prayer that believers would be totally filled by God, the second prayer moves beyond the first one. And y'all, I love this prayer, and, and, and not just for its lyrical, poetic quality. I was an English major in college, so I love language, but also just for its rich theological content and, and what it meant for Paul's readers and, and what it still means for us today. And so just to give you a sense of where we are headed, um, I want to bring us in and narrow our focus and, and take a look at each of Paul's requests in this prayer line by line. Um, don't worry, we'll spend longer on some and not as long on others, because um, some of them, I think, just feel more familiar to us. Um, but maybe some that sound the most familiar to us might have more to say than we might think. At, at least that's been true of me, the more that I have spent time in this text. So the first one, verse 16, Paul asks that his readers would be strengthened with power in their inner being through his spirit. And remember, Paul has already asked in his first prayer that readers would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, and he notes how this power is demonstrated in the resurrection. But here, Paul prays that this power would strengthen their inner being for a specific reason, not just that they would know the power that's available to them, but that they would be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. And it's important to know that it is the Spirit who strengthens and enables us to even allow Christ to dwell in our hearts. It's not something that we can do on our own. And when we hear this phrase, Christ dwelling in our hearts, we might have in mind the sort of evangelical tradition of salvation where we accept Christ into our hearts. Um, or maybe that's just me, but I was raised Southern Baptist where the whole congregation was asked every week to invite Jesus into their hearts, um, which as a kid, I think I did every single week. <laughs> I don't think I really got the part where, you know, once he like came into your heart, he wasn't going anywhere. It's like I thought that he was just going to wander out on accident, so I needed to like keep asking him to come back. Um, so that may or may not be what we think of when we hear this phrase, but Paul has already named that his reader's salvation or conversion experience was an event of the past, something already accomplished for them by Jesus. Paul addresses his letter to those who are already the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. So he's not praying that they would accept Christ for the first time, but for the abiding result of their salvation. That is Christ's continued presence in their lives as they continue to grow in their relationship with Christ and in their love and trust and obedience of him. John 14, 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will follow my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. So there's this piece of love and obedience when we talk about Christ dwelling in our hearts, of Christ making his home in our hearts, like I think Bibi's text um, for us today said. And if it's Christ's home, then we let him repaint and rearrange the furniture a little bit, right? 
the greater experience of the Spirit's power that Paul prays his readers will have. It's so that Christ's dwelling in our hearts would change us, so that Christ and his character would increasingly become the hallmark of believers' lives, that their lives would be continuously reoriented toward him, that they would abide in Christ and Christ in them. Next, the second half of verse 17 and moving into 18, Paul asks that they, being rooted and established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. Love is clearly to be the soil and the foundation upon which readers build their lives. And this imagery of roots of being tethered in love, it speaks to the nature and the quality of this love that it isn't easily damaged by winds or waves or anything else that might seek to uproot it. This love has staying power. There's also an element here of the scope of God's love, that there is no measuring the length, width, height, or depth of God's love, that it, it goes beyond where we think it does, that it has no border or boundary lines. God's love is infinite and immeasurable. And this would have been a really important message for Paul's original audience to hear. Remember how we've talked about how Paul was writing to Gentiles who would have been, until very recently, left out of God's promises. And still, many Jews had a hard time accepting that the Gentiles were also part of the family and got a seat at the table. So this would have been an incredible message of inclusion for them. And it is for us as well. Um, Chad reminded us a couple weeks ago that we are also Gentiles and without Jesus would also be strangers to God's promises. But in Christ, there is no one whom God excludes from his love. No matter who you are or what kind of family you were born into, no matter what you've done or what you've left undone, so if you've ever found yourself drawing a line that excludes yourself from God's promises, from God's love, for whatever reason, this passage makes it clear. You've drawn the line wrong. God draws you in. You are included within the boundless love of God. It extends also to you. And on the flip side of that, if you've ever found yourself excluding any individual or group of people, I'd suggest to you that you'd also be drawing the line wrong. There is no limit to the length and width, height and depth of who God's love includes. It is for everyone. Now, this next prayer request from Paul, verse 19, is one that's really fascinating to me, um, and it's that his readers would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And I think one thing that I find so interesting about it is that it's a paradox, right? How are his readers supposed to know something that is beyond knowing? Well, in Greek, the word know, gnosko, has a wider range of meaning and application than how we usually use and understand it. Um, and something you should be aware of, I've had one semester of Greek which people joke um, makes me just know just enough to be dangerous. Um, so I told Chad I wouldn't lean too hard on this, I promise. Um, but I think that this helps us get a, a bigger picture of what Paul is praying for here. 
So when we say we know something, usually we either mean that we already have that fact stored in our memories, like we know how to get to Johnny's house from the gas station, or we know what 12 times four is. It's 48, by the way, and yes, I did put it in my calculator just to make sure. <laughs> um, or we know a person, which can include someone who's a close friend, or a friend of a friend, or even a celebrity, right? Like, we would all probably say that we know Elvis Presley because we know his music, we know who he is. But to know throughout scripture, it can mean to perceive or understand, to be sure of, to be well acquainted with. And it's even a Jewish idiom, right? The Virgin Mary tells the angel Gabriel that she has never known a man, and so asks how then could she be pregnant? So the word know can have connotations of intimate relationship as well. So when Paul prays for his readers to know Christ's love, he doesn't mean that he wants them to know it as a disconnected thought, um, a piece of trivia that they have stored in their brains. He wants them to know Christ's love, to experience it for real intimately in their hearts, and to let that knowledge sink into their lives and change something essential about who they are. There's a man named Robert Coles. Um, he's the professor of psychiatry and humanities, um, medical humanities at Harvard, and he published an article titled The Disparity Between Intellect and Character. And it's basically about how they found, you know, these students at Harvard, they are brilliant, but their knowledge doesn't make them any better people on average. And so in this article, he describes a young woman, a student at Harvard, who serves as a custodian in order to help fund her education, and talks about her difficulties and how the other students mistreat her because of her lower class level. They fail to show her simple courtesy and respect, and one student in particular, a male student, would constantly make crude advances toward her. And the woman says that this particular student, who mistreated her the worst, also received the highest grades in his moral reasoning class. I'm sure that you see the irony. The woman says, I've been taking all these philosophy courses and we talk about what's true, what's important, what's good. Well, how do you teach people to be good? What's the point of knowing good if you don't keep trying to become a good person? What Robert Coles and this young woman have named here is the gap between knowing something in our heads and allowing that knowledge to transform our actual lives. This is the kind of knowing of Christ's love that Paul prays so earnestly for. And I think another reason why I'm particularly intrigued by this prayer request of Paul's is that um, it seems like the simplest one, you know, know Christ's love. But it also might be the hardest. From conversations that I get to have with people, I know that a lot of us struggle with this. It's, it's hard sometimes for us to truly accept and experience Christ's love for us for tons of different reasons, right? Maybe we have unresolved childhood wounds or damaged relationships or a general sense of our unworthiness. All of these things can get in the way of knowing Christ's love experientially like he wants us to. And I think God knew that this would be true of us. And I think that's one of the reasons that he made us for community, for relationship, so that we could help one another know Christ's love. <clears throat> 
Verse 18 says that Paul prays that his readers would comprehend with all the saints God's love that he has for him, has for them. Sometimes I think the most tangible way that we experience God's love for us in the here and now, in everyday moments, is through his love that moves within us and moves us to love our neighbors. When we begin to doubt our belovedness before God, the love we offer one another in community should serve as a palpable reminder of Christ's love for us. 1 John 4, 11 and 12 say, Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made perfect in us. One last reason I think that we struggle to really know God's love is I wonder if we're looking for the proof of his love in the wrong places. At least for me, I tend to look for the proof of God's love in his answers to my prayers. I have these desires and these requests that I bring before God, sometimes even good, holy desires for family members and loved ones to come to know Jesus or to be healed or, or for some bad situation to turn out well. And if it doesn't, or more often when it doesn't, at least not in the way that I want it to, I find myself doubting. Does God really love me? Does he hear my prayers? If he does, why doesn't he just do this thing for me? Does he even care? Maybe you found yourself asking similar questions. And if that's you, I just want to take a second to say that God does love you infinitely more than you could even imagine but the proof of God's love for us, it isn't that he answers all of our prayers in exactly the way that we think that he should. God has already shown us his love. And all the proof we could ever need, he's already shown us in his son. Romans 5, 8 says, but God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the proof of God's love for us. How we experience this love tangibly in our day-to-day -day lives is in community. The very last request Paul makes is that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And earlier in the letter, he names that the church is the fullness of God. And it's this beautiful picture of the already and the not yet. We, the body of believers, this community of love and forgiveness, we are the fullness of Christ already, because he tells us we are. And yet, we're not totally filled to the fullest fullness of God. And so we pray with Paul that God would strengthen us by his Holy Spirit with the same power that raised Christ from the dead, that we might grow in the knowledge and experience of God's love, proved to us in Christ's death, that we might root ourselves in the boundless love that God has for us and demonstrate that love to one another. Today, as we come to this table and join together in holy communion, Christ invites us to take, eat, and be filled with the life of God. 
In John 6, 56, Jesus tells the crowd that those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Jesus, in some holy mystery, meets us here at this meal. As you eat, let this bread and cup over which we give thanks be physical proof, tangible evidence of Christ's boundless love for you, his church. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank <clears throat> you.